All right, we are back in our series uh, on the life of Abraham, Seeds of Faith. We have really been uh, watching as Abram has gone through this period of growth. And as you know, it's kind of a, a fast-forward version of this story in the Scripture. This is what, what is being covered is a matter of decades, and we are doing it over the space of about eight weeks altogether. Uh, so we're going very, very quickly uh, through the Scriptures and through the story but today in chapter 17 is where I'm going to end up. But I, I want to remind you uh, of where it has been so far. The Abram and Sarai story began in chapter 12 when Abram was 75 years old. He was called by a God he had never had any connection with or any acquaintance with and told, I want you to leave your country, your family, all of your kin. I want you to start walking, and I'll let you know when you get to the land that I'm going to give you. And so Abram began a journey of a thousand miles to get all the way up around the Fertile Crescent and back down to the land of Canaan. And it's at a certain point in time, God said, look around you. Here it is. You're there. And so he began this promise, this process of waiting on God's fulfillment for a promise. And part of the promise was descendants. Not only am I going to give you a land to live in, but I'm going to give you descendants. And there are going to be so many of them, it's going to be impossible to number them. And I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations of people. Well, that promise was made, and on it came. And last week, we talked about the fact that after 10 years of waiting, finally, Abram and Sarah, uh, Abram and Sarah kind of hatched this plan that, uh, that said, you know what? Part of our culture says if, if you will just go into my handmaiden, we can adopt the baby born out of that relationship, and that can be our heir. Having already had a discussion with God, Abraham knew that it wasn't going to just be an adopted child, but his own flesh and blood. So Abram and Sarai, after 10 years, when he was uh, 86 years of age, well, maybe this will be the plan and the process. And we talked all about that last week, which, by the way, uh, just as a side, you can get the sermons from here at the church website, as well as the videos from Yorktown. Uh, go to the resources tab and drop down. You'll find it. Search your way around there. But these are audio for right now. And uh, so you can catch up if you missed something or if you didn't like what you heard here, you can listen to Pastor Sean or Pastor Joey or somebody. Uh, but anyway, uh, that was 10 or so years later. Now we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17 and we read very interesting opening words. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, and goes on to reiterate this promise. So between the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17, 13 more years have, have passed by. He's now 99 years old. The promise originally made when he was 75. And God comes to him and says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. And he goes on to reiterate this promise. And we're going to see today the promised birth of Isaac, the son of Abram and Sarai. The possibility of the promise is uh, hard to imagine, right? The possibility of the promise is like this. It was not. <laughs> it was impossible because Abram was 99 years old. I know he was going to live in the account to 175, so, but still, he's 99 years old. And his wife is pushing 90. So this whole story needs in our minds to be in the context of do 90 and 100-year-old couples have babies? No. It's impossible. In fact, when the writer to the Hebrews writes about this, he refers to Abram this way. He says, when Abram and him as good as dead, it says. I don't think that was a reference to his general health. It just means he's 99. He can't have children. He and his wife are not going to have children. That's not how it works. But God's promising something here. And we've seen already that the promise of God is based on the ability and power of God, not on what man can do, right? So why is it going to be made possible? The name God uses for himself in this first verse is a really powerful name. I am God Almighty. You might recognize the term El Shaddai. There have been songs written with that phrase in it. It's a word that is potent with meaning. It's used 48 times in the Old Testament. And it really, in I guess simplest terms, means the one who is enough. What an incredible phrase to describe God. It's not, it's not just talking about his power. We've seen his power. We, we know discussions in the Old Testament about the power of God and what he is able to do. But this is a word that talks about God being enough. If you're in the midst of facing some struggle, some difficulty in your life... I, I know it's hard to envision because we want something in plain sight in front of us, but I'm telling you that in your life, just as in Abram's life, just as in Sarai's life, God is enough. There is some sense in which that phrase carries with it the, the conception of a, even of a mom who is caring deeply for her children. They depend on her for all of their necessary sustenance. Let me, let me finish reading down through this section because we've already seen a couple of times where God says, I have done this and I will do this. I'm in verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And, and I will give you to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Seven times in those eight verses, God says, I will do this. This is what I'm going to do. It still was not something that depended on 
Abram or on Abram's willingness or ability to have this happen. You remember the discussion Pastor Sean took us through of that that sacrifice that was made, that covenant that he made back in chapter 15 and how Abram divided the, the larger animals and set the others opposite each other and how customarily two parties would walk between those pieces together and seal their covenant. God put Abraham to sleep and walked through the pieces himself because this covenant was going to depend on God, not on Abram. When God promises to accomplish something God accomplishes it. He does not need me to be able. He needs me to be a willing participant. The permanence of the covenant, all of those pictures about you and your offspring throughout their generations, but he, this, is, this is not just a single nation. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. We get to the New Testament and we realize that this promise to Abram was not just a promise to a particular or, or only to a particular ethnic group. It was to all nations of all peoples. And we're going to go into the New Testament here in a minute and talk about the, the connection here. But you and I are in this promise. You and I are here. If we have trusted in Christ, if our hope is in Christ alone for salvation, in the, the finished work of Jesus, we become part of the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abram, to be the father of a multitude of nations people from every tribe and tongue that will become part of the covenant people of God. And while it is not essential, it is not necessary, I don't have to be able to help carry out this promise. I still have a responsibility to participate in the promise. Our poor slide people, I, I, I do everything I can so that they are able to know exactly when they're supposed to flip the slides and then I don't follow my own script. So that's kind of a bad thing. But, so I apologize. But there is participation on our part in the script. Uh, we're, we're, we're in what God has promised here, right? We are, we are going to be involved in this promise. We have a responsibility, though our obedience doesn't make us part of the promise. It's not that it saves us. It's just that we have a responsibility to participate. This next section is an introduction of something that must have been really weird to the ears of Abram. God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations. And he gives this whole long-term thing. At eight days, every one of your sons, when they're born, when they're eight days old, they'll be circumcised. And that will be the sign of the covenant participation. If they're not circumcised, they're not part of the covenant people. Now, I don't want to get too PG-13 on you, but these are all adult men. And I, just, I can just imagine as Abram reports back, okay, we're going to participate in God's promise and here's what needs to happen. They're going to be like, excuse me? <laughs> here's, here's where I want to go with that. Can you go to Colossians 2 with me for a minute? Because there's something in the New Testament that I think is so vitally important for us to understand the connection between circumcision in the Old Testament 
And what is it in the New Testament that replaces circumcision? I think there's a little confusion about it uh, in our culture because it is not a particular act. It is something else that makes us part of the covenant people. I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 of Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That sounds a lot like how that whole chapter we just read started, right? I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. There is, there is a participation, but it doesn't depend on my participation. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, here's the connection, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So here's what happens. In the Old Testament... If you were going to be part of the covenant community, every male in the household was to be circumcised. And if they weren't, they weren't part of the covenant community. We get to the New Testament, you become part of the covenant community when you are in Christ. So you trust in Christ, you have hope in Christ. Being in Christ is the equivalent of, in the New Testament, of circumcision in the Old Testament. That's what makes you part of the family. It is desperately important to understand that because just as in the Old Testament, if you were not circumcised, you were not part of God's people. In the New Testament, if you've never trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation, you are not part of God's people. That's the thing that changes everything. Let me keep reading a little bit because this just gets really good. This preaches. By the way, we're going to be going through the book of Colossians this summer, so... I'm kind of excited already since I'm here. But having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working, powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is, in Christ. That's pretty cool, right? He wiped out everything that stood against you between you and God in Christ. And when you're in Christ, nothing stands between you and God. Good night. That's just incredible. I'd start dancing, but it would not be pretty. <laughs> I mean, that's really amazing, right? It, once I am in Christ, everything that God had against me is no longer valid. And listen, if you're not in Christ, God has a lot against you. You're a sinner. You stand in danger of judgment from God. Be 
Being in Christ is the New Testament equivalent. And, and baptism then becomes a symbol. Baptism is mentioned there in Colossians 2. Baptism becomes a symbol not to replace circumcision. It's not that baptism does anything to bring you in Christ. That's, that's between you and God. That's when you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You acknowledge you're a sinner. You acknowledge you can't get to heaven on your own. You, you ask God to forgive you of your sins based on what Jesus did. You trust in him as your only hope of salvation. God forgives you of your sin, makes you his child. You're part of the people of God. Then you get baptized to tell everybody else about that. You get baptized to let everybody know I'm identifying myself with God because he's been willing to identify himself with me. So it becomes a symbol of the fact that our heart has, if you will, been circumcised. Baptism is really important. It doesn't save you, but it does tell the folks around you, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm identifying with the one who has identified with me in his death and burial and resurrection, specifically Jesus. So it is really important, and it's why we make such a thing out of it, and I, I hope if that has never happened, uh, you will uh, give serious consideration to being baptized. So if you want to summarize this participation in the promise, it's this. Your participation is expected, but the fulfillment of the promise of God to you in Christ does not depend on you. I hope that's encouraging to you as it is to me. Verse 15, God said to Abram, Abraham now, and, and let, me, let me give you the, the thing, a father of a multitude is Abraham. Remember, he has one son that he has adopted through relations with his wife's handmaid. One son, and now is he not only exalted father, now he's father of a multitude. And he still only has one. God's, God's upping the ante, if you will, of his promise by changing his name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he explains it this way, God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. If there's any distinction, it's probably that Sarai was a princess. Sarah was the wife of a noblewoman. But a noblewoman would be the woman from whom kings would come, which is just exactly what God has promised. I will bless her, verse 16 says, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who's ninety years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, All oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. What's, it, what's Isaac mean? Laughter. Every time she hollered for Isaac, Abraham would remember, oh yeah, I laughed when God said that. But let's not be too hard on him, because if the, if the black van shows up in front of your house and somebody gets out with a bottle of champagne and balloons and a great big check on a card, what's your reaction probably going to be? You're probably going to laugh, right? Among other things. And when they wake you up, you get your $10 million and long as you tithe to the church, I'll rejoice with you. But <laughs> he, he la he's a hundred years old. It's, 
It's joy. It's amazement. For 13 years, he has still assumed that Ishmael was going to be the child of promise. I've adopted Ishmael. For 13 years, they figured, well, this is the one. Here we go. Now we're just waiting for more kids. But it's very, very detailed confirmation. I hope that doesn't mean I have to stand still. God said, no, but Sarah, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He'll father 12 princes. I'll make him into a great nation. But I'll establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. It's astonishing, right? We titled this message, What Happens When God Answers Big? (laughs) 25 years ago, God had promised to Abraham, you're going to be a father. I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to bless you and bless all the nations of the world through you and through your descendants And we move to the book of Galatians and we realize that the descendants of Abraham include those who exercise faith as Abraham did and become children of God through faith in Christ so that we, his descendants, have the privilege and opportunity to bless people around us. And though he has this, what I think is kind of a natural response, God very specifically and in a very detailed way confirms his promise. Now I want you to jump over. We're going to talk a little about the beginning part of chapter 18 next week, but I want to jump over to verse 9 for a minute because this is the occasion when Sarah gets this direct information or hears it directly. Verse 9 of chapter 18, this is uh, some angels, including the angel of the Lord, have come to speak to Abraham and They said, verse 9, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? The announcement of the guests is this. Sarah, by the way, is in fact going to have a son. She is going to bear you a son at 90 years of age, even though it's impossible. Her response, I think, is similar to Abraham's, a natural response. Was it the laughter of doubt as opposed to the laughter of amazement? I don't know. God said to Abram after he laughed, oh no, it will be in fact you guys. It's going to be Isaac. He says, why why did Sarah laugh? You know, I wonder, I wonder if it was just simply a, why is she laughing? What's the problem? For God, this is not a problem, right? Nothing is impossible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What, what, what's she laughing for? 
at the appointed time, verse 14 says, I will return to you next year and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it. I didn't laugh. For she was afraid. But he said, no, you did laugh. I love this story. Not because everything that we pray for and everything that we long for, God's just going to do if we wait long enough. But because when God says, this is what I'm going to do, God is going to do it. It's not just a story about Abraham and Sarah saying, oh, I wish we had a baby. Oh, I wish we had a kid. Oh, I wish we had this. I wish this could happen. And finally, God relented and said, okay, fine. I'll give it to you. That's, this is not a story about the effectiveness of prayer. Those are, that's for other times. This is a story about God saying, here's what I'm going to do, and I'm going to wait until it's impossible to show you that I am the God who can do anything. I hate waiting as much as the next person. I talked a little about that last week. So let me just ask you a couple of questions as we close. A couple of thoughts to take with you. Is, is your situation impossible? Is the situation you're in, and if you are in circumstances that you are convinced this is, this is what God has said he's going to do, Here's the promise of God. Does, does resolution to your situation just seem laughable? Does it just seem crazy that God could make anything out of your circumstances? I, I know people, I've talked with people who just will say to me, you know, I don't, I've messed my life up so badly, I don't see how God could make anything out of this. I, I want you to know this is what God specializes in. God specializes in doing something when it seems like nothing could work. You may, you may look at the whole idea of salvation as I've talked about in trusting in Christ as I just, I'm just too far gone. They, God couldn't save me. Oh yeah, God can. Can, can God care for your situation? All of those questions are answered in this text. The next question is, will you trust him to do that? Will you trust him to answer big in your life? Jeremiah 32, 17 says this, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for God. God can get glory in the midst of your most frustrating circumstance. When you are at your lowest, God can reach in and do a work in your heart and life and get glory to himself in the middle of it. If you're here today and have never trusted in Christ, I want you to know this. It is impossible for you to get right with God. You cannot do enough good. You can't attend enough church services. It doesn't matter if you were raised in the best family. There's nothing you can do to get right with God. Luke chapter 18 verse 27 with reference to salvation when the disciples realized in a conversation with Jesus that what does it take to be right with God and Jesus gave him an illustration that was basically impossible and they said well then 
then it's not possible. And Jesus said, you're right. But what is impossible with men is possible with God. It's not about you earning your way. It's not about you doing enough good to balance out with the bad. It's not about you going to the right place or doing the right thing, being, a, being good enough to people around you. None of the things that we customarily hear, oh, if I just try a little harder, you'll spend your whole life trying harder and fall short. Because the Bible says we all fall short. At our very best, our righteousness in comparison with God's is filthy rags, Isaiah said. But the good news is, it doesn't depend on you. If you're here and you've never trusted Christ as your only hope of salvation, it doesn't depend on you to get to heaven. It depends on God. And he sent Jesus to die on the cross and pay the penalty for your sin. He lived a perfect life. I've been reading through recently. I'm in a read through the Bible in a year plan on my you version. And right now I'm in, I'm in Leviticus. Pray for me. But it's fascinating to me to read through all the specificity of these laws. Don't do this and don't do this with this person and that person and don't do it that way and make sure you do it this way. Incredibly detailed. Really helping the children of Israel to understand when you're approaching God, you've got to recognize you're always going to fall short. We get to the New Testament, we're told that's what the law was for, to prove that we can't make it. If you're here and you've never trusted in Christ as your only hope of salvation, I want to plead with you today to recognize I can't do this. This is impossible for me. But it's possible with God. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. He, he lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law, lived the life you can't live. He died on the cross, bore the penalty of your sin. He was buried in a tomb and on the third day he came back to life again, just like we sang a little bit ago. And if you will come to God repent of your sin, recognize you're a sinner, and that because of that you fall short, and ask God to save you based on what Jesus did, not on what you're going to try and do. In that instant, God transfers you. The Bible describes it as transferring you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. You become part of the people of God. It's really an incredible thing. And it begins a a journey and a process of growth in faith, just like Abraham did. I, I'm, I'm fascinated to watch Abram's growth in faith, sometimes up, sometimes down, right? Sometimes, sometimes courage, sometimes fear, sometimes great trust, sometimes doubt. Just like all of us, Abraham was in this process of growth in a general incline of faith with occasional bouts of struggle you get to begin that and recognize that it is by the power of God that you live as you ought. It's by the power of God that you become a blessing to other people. So if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, listen, I want to I wanna talk with you. We've got people who are, who are here and talk to, to Dave and Mary Jo or Nate that were up here singing this morning. Come talk to me. Uh, we're, we'd be happy to sit down and share with you how you can know your sins are forgiven and you're on your way to heaven. If there's, if there's anything that's more important than that, I don't know what it is. It's the most important decision you'll ever make. You got some need in your life, you just need to, to pray with somebody. We've got, we've got uh, folks that will be happy to sit down and do that with you. We'd love to try and encourage you in your walk with God as we together trust God for what we can't do. We can't fix our stuff, right? We've all tried that. We can't fix it anymore after we're saved than before. 
We've got we to lean into God and trust in Christ to give us and to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. It's really important, right? Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, I'm really grateful for the truth of the scriptures. I'm really glad for uh, the reality of who you are. Not just that you're incredibly powerful, but that you're, you're, you specialize in taking the mess of our life and in bringing glory to yourself through it. I'm so really grateful for that. I pray for that person or maybe more that's here uh, sitting in this room with us this morning that doesn't know for sure that they're right in their relationship to God. Lord, I pray that you'd give them the courage to come and talk to somebody so we can help them uh, talk that through and, and see them respond in faith to Jesus and, and watch their life be transformed. I pray that you would uh, challenge them in it. Lord, don't give them any rest till they get that resolved. Uh, Lord, there are others here uh, probably who are struggling. Something's going on and uh, they're just not sure where to turn. Lord, even as believers, sometimes we need to remember to turn back to you. And I pray that that would happen. Bless us, Lord. We just we want to honor you and serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.